and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Amen. Amen. Boy, my heart is full. I don't know about yours, but what a great time we've had in the house of the Lord already. Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 1. And as you're turning there, let me remind you that uh, next week, of course, is Mother's Day. And so let me make a challenge. If you're one of the ladies and you have a a nice Mother's Day hat you'd like to wear next week, uh, I know we don't do that a lot in these days. We have pictures from the past in the church and every woman came in with her hat on and stuff like that. But if you have a nice hat you'd like to wear, I think the first lady will. And so you come wearing that hat next week and we'll celebrate our mothers next week in the church. Also, you saw when you came in maybe that the flag was at half-mast. That is to uh, make us aware of fallen firefighters. We've got some wonderful firefighters in our church and other first responders. I'm told that last year, 76 uh, different firefighters across the country lost their lives while fighting fires. And so uh, today our thoughts especially go to you guys that are out there and serve like that and uh, your families. And we want to keep on lifting up uh, our firefighters and all of our first responders as they are there in very difficult situations sometimes. And things can get out of hand just like that. And so be sure and pray them and thank them today. And if you're at lunch with one of them, go ahead and buy their lunch for them today uh, to show your appreciation for all they uh, do. And uh, maybe they have a story or two for you of colleagues that have been lost along the way. But we're very thankful for those men and women that serve that way. Well, I wonder, did anybody here watch any of the coronation of King Charles in England? We can't help ourselves sometimes. Our thoughts are drawn to things like that, even though we're over here in America. Sure was a lot of pomp and circumstance with it. It wasn't there. And uh, some of the ceremonial things they did go back hundreds and some even a thousand years. I think 40 uh, different kings now have been uh, coronated in that one place going all the way back to 1062. So a long, long way back. But one thing I kept thinking about in my mind uh, as I was aware that that was going on was how England uh, used to be an absolute monarchy and now it's a constitutional monarchy. You say, what's the difference between an absolute monarchy and a constitutional monarchy? Well, in an absolute monarchy, like the kings of England used to be, what they said would go, and all of the subjects were accountable to do exactly what they had decreed. It was absolute. You had to do what the king said. There was no way around it. But in a constitutional monarchy, like England has now, representatives of the people gather, and they make laws, and those laws are brought to the king for a signature. But these days, it's a ceremonial signature. Then the laws are implemented by government agencies under a prime minister. But let's say King Charles or any other king that's in a constitutional monarchy doesn't want to sign the law representing what the people have just said they want to do. 
Too bad, King Charles. Too bad, king under a constitutional monarchy. What the people have decided is going to happen. You're just being asked to give your blessing, but if you don't give your blessing, nothing's going to change. The law is still going to happen. In return, King Charles and other kings, you're going to get to live in the palace. You're going to get to tour the world as kind of a mascot for our country. They'll talk about the King of England this and the King of England that, but you're really just representing and a public face of the way things used to be, and uh, no one is going to really listen to the speech you give. And so we like all that pomp and circumstance. It has, there's a place for that, but we're not going to do what you say. And you know, one of the main reasons they changed from being an absolute monarchy to, uh, was because so many kings in the past abused that authority, didn't they? My goodness, they, had, they made arbitrary and selfish rules. They would change when they themselves didn't live up to those laws. That's just kind of how they rolled. And it was very frustrating being a subject. I think of King Henry and all of his marriages and his uh, divorced and beheaded wives. I, I think about King George and the American colonies and how he had all kinds of uh, selfish rules imposed on us and we had taxation without representation. We're back in the Roman Empire during the cruel days of emperors like Nero and Domitian. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm glad that we live in a democracy now. But there is a now and coming kingdom that is ruled by an absolute monarch who is 100% worthy to be loved and followed both now and forevermore. Amen? And those who receive him become his eternally blessed subjects. And so as we look at Acts 1, what Jesus said before he ascended to heaven, uh, I want to uh, look at the now and coming kingdom. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Luke writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about, what did he speak about? Speaking about the kingdom of God. And while saying, staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. Golly, he was lifted up. And a, cl and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. They looked up and saw him leaving. They looked around and saw probably two angels there, two men dressed in white robes is what it says here, and said, the angels, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The now and coming kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you so much for the joy we've had hearing testimony today and singing to you, Lord God. And Lord, we just are so appreciative for what you're doing in our individual lives and in the life of the church body and in 
the area all around us. You are the rightful king of all of creation. And Lord, I thank you so much that you spiritually rule now in every heart here who has accepted you as Savior and Lord. And I thank you that there is a day you'll have a physical kingdom on earth in fulfillment of all the scriptures that talk about that, Lord. Lord, we know that sometimes Christians get in little fights about whether the kingdom is a spiritual thing now or a physical kingdom to come, and we thank you that in Christ the answer is yes. You already rule those that are yours, and one day will be the most beautiful time the earth's ever experienced. And we thank you so much, Lord, for all the promises that are and will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, you'll remember that at the end of March, if you were here, I finished a series in Colossians, and in, I've told you that in June, I'm going to begin a little series in the book of Ecclesiastes, so I encourage you to read through the book of Ecclesiastes one, two, or three times uh, before then. But uh, what I've been thinking about between Easter and between uh, Pentecost Sunday, which is 50 days later, is what happened during those days between Christ rising from the dead and his ascending to heaven and then when the Spirit came at the day of Pentecost and the church was born, literally the birthday of the church would probably be that day of Pentecost. And so I, I wanted today to look at the teaching Jesus did over those 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension to heaven. And then 10 days after that would be the Feast of Pentecost. You know, there's only about 120 verses that cover those 40 days, and about half of those relate to that first day, that Sunday when he rose from the dead, and about half of those are about the exchange Jesus had with the two guys walking on the road to Emmaus. That leaves about 60 verses or so for the, four, for the day number two through day number 40 that we come to this death and resurrection. Back in eight, on April 16th, we talked about how during those 40 days, Jesus had his encounter eight days after the resurrection with Thomas, when Thomas finally got to see what the other disciples had already experienced. And he rose from the dead, and we saw how wonderful it was that Jesus said, Thomas, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who never get to see physically, but believe. And we talked about how believing is seeing. One day our faith will be sight. And he was talking to all of us who, on the basis of changed lives and testimonies and the preaching of the word and the looking into the things ourselves and seeing fulfilled prophecy, turn to Christ and follow him. As Peter said, those who love him already, though we've not yet physically seen him, and that includes the people here today. We could have talked about Jesus' wonderful restoration of Peter that we see in John 21, and we could have talked about the giving of the Great Commission also. But the passage I just read lets us know one of the key themes that Jesus reinforced during those 40 days, and it certainly is worth emphasizing. I don't know that we talk about it enough, about how Jesus is already the spiritual king of those who know him. So verses 1 through 3, Jesus' post-resurrection teaching to his disciples. So look again there at verse 1. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus. What was that first book? The Gospel of Luke. How do we know that Luke and Acts are connected? Well, in Luke 1, 3, he also dedicates the book to Theophilus. Now, do you know what Theophilus means? God lover, right? God lover. Not God lover like southern ladies say, God lover. But God lover. A God lover. Now, some people think that Luke was writing to an actual person with the name Theophilus, and maybe he was. I've read that, and it's got some good things to say for that. But I do believe that what he's really doing is writing to everybody who ever reads Luke or ever reads Acts and wants to know more about their faith and is a lover of God. People like the ones that are in the room today. Does your heart go pitter-patter when you hear yourself referred to as a God lover? 
I sure hope it does. When Jesus defined eternal life in John 17, 3, he didn't just make it about hell insurance. He said, this is eternal life, Father, that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And so eternal life is a relationship with Jesus that begins at the moment of salvation and continues on from that moment out into eternity. It will involve heaven. It'll later involve being in a new body on a new earth. But the main thing it's about is knowing Jesus personally and growing in him. It's really nothing to sneeze at. Now back in Acts 1, he picks back up there because Luke's gospel ends with just a couple words about the ascension. And in Acts 1, he starts and he says, let me give you a little bit more about that. And then he goes into the day of Pentecost and the beginning and expansion of the early church. Look at what it says there. It says in Acts 1, he presented himself alive. He presented himself alive, verse 3, to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. What a great verse. Have you ever thought about that? Now, we don't know that it was 40 days in a row. It looks like Jesus came and went. We don't know where he was during that time. That's fascinating to think about. But wouldn't you have loved to, on the other side of Christ's resurrection from the dead, dead, him to have a little time of seminary with you, him to have a little time of camp with you, him to have a little seminar time with you, where he says, okay, I taught you before. You didn't seem to get it. You've been wondering about things. Let me go back over all that I taught about my rule in your lives and what it's going to look like. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were Jesus and had been shamefully treated by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body, and by the Roman authorities, the Roman rulers of the day, who would you have appeared to? I'll tell you what Danny Campbell would have done. Thank the Lord I'm not Jesus, but I'll tell you what I would have done. I would have gone right to wherever Pilate was right to wherever Herod was. I'd have gone right to wherever Caiaphas and Annas, the guys competing for high priest. One was the father-in-law that was the real high priest, even though his son-in-law was in the office. And I'd have done the John Cena thing. (laughs) I'm back. I'm back. You killed me, but look, I'm here. You didn't take me out. I'm here. That's what I'd have done. Maybe some of you had done that too. But, uh, you know, he could have said, hey, Write down in the records of Rome, send this to all the provinces, you that don't believe in me and don't follow me, you've seen me alive now, and you're going to have to deal with the ramifications. But you know, he did not do that at all, and it's so intriguing that he didn't. And so we asked the question, why didn't Jesus appear to unbelievers over those 40 days? And the thing that we conclude by looking at the scriptures is because God never rewards pride and unbelief with divine knowledge. He rewards humility and faith. I've come to love a hymn that I didn't like when I sang it for years. Fanny Crosby's, while in others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Never really understood it, but it's become to mean a lot to me. Because I think the heart's cry she's sharing there is, you know, I see people and they're having this experience with the Lord, and I want that too. And instead of being proud and constantly evaluating people and things in the Bible and all those different things, uh, God's looking for people that will humble themselves before them. It's okay to want answers. It's okay to ask questions. But man, at some point, you just have to be in awe of the answers he's already given, the way things already connect for you, the way he's already proven himself to be so good, good to you. And he rewards those who humbly seek him. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And what will he do? He'll lift you up. Man, it would be great when we witness to others to have on record, hey, listen, Pilate gave out the record back to Rome. Look, this guy's alive. He came to the office and did the John Cena thing to me, you know. 
But we don't have that. What we do have is changed lives from the first century who led people to Christ and changed lives in the second century that changed lives, saw, lives changed ever since all the way down, snowballing down to today and the testimony we heard already today. And it sounds like we need to have Marty back sometime to hear her part of that story and her testimony too. Would you like that? That'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Amen. But what did he speak to them about? He, he, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that during those 40 days, it was no more than 500 people. No more than 500 people. He appeared to several individuals and then the 12. And uh, we know that there are 120 praying in the upper room. We'll see that again in a couple weeks. But uh, he had no more than 500 hear, them hear him talk during those 40 days. What did he say to them? Well, verse 3, he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Now, what do you have to have to have a kingdom? You have to have a king, and you have to have subjects, and you need a realm being governed. Sometimes we just go over the gospel facts, you know, the realm governed, and we talk about how the Bible presents Jesus as the Lord of the physical realm. He could walk on water. He could feed 5,000 with a sack lunch. He could make body parts that weren't working again. Sometimes we talk about how he's Lord of the spiritual realm and how he could cast out demons and how he claimed the authority to forgive sins and he's still forgiven sins from heaven today. We've talked about how he's Lord of the doctrinal realm. After he got done teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, they said, this guy teaches as one who has authority and not just those, uh, some say this, some say that, teachers that we have, you choose. No, you gotta understand what God meant. Jesus clarified so much of the Old Testament teaching for us when he spoke on earth. You need a realm being governed. Now, our triune God is the king in the kingdom of God. Those who believe in him of all ages are his subjects. It's okay for you to say King Jesus. Describing the realm, though, as I, I just mentioned, sometimes it, it gets a little interesting, a little more tricky, because it is both spiritual now with an expectation of a coming physical rule on earth. And when we think about earthly kingdoms, we think about territories with land boundaries and things like that. When Charles became king of uh, Great Britain... He actually also became king of 15 other land areas that, in the world that are far from Britain. But the Bible makes clear that as creator of the world and the universe, God is the rightful ruler of every square inch in the entire universe. Amen? Do you believe that? It's all his. He says, mine, including the physical kingdoms of the world that presently live in rebellion against him and do not acknowledge his kingship. But the Bible also makes clear that one day God will put an end to human rebellion and actually come down here and physically rule on earth. It was certainly an expectation of scores of passages from the Old Testament times. And we see that reflected even in the disciples' expectations here in Acts 1. Let me show you one of those verses. Daniel chapter 7 verse 27 says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven, the ones on earth, shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Daniel would have understood that to be some kind of rule for Jewish people uh, in the future. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And I give you also there to look at later, verses 13 and 14 of Daniel. That's where it talks about the Son of Man is coming on the clouds, and he's going to come down, and he's going to rule and reign, and all on earth is going to be subject to him. So Jewish people have always understood this eventual rule of their Messiah would mean him being the perfect king of Israel from there ruling the world, uh, from the physical throne promised to David and the physical land promised to Abraham. Let me show you Isaiah 9. You've seen this. We talk about it at Christmas time 
where it says, for to us a child is born, speaking of the Messiah, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, we know that Jesus has come. We know that he lived the perfect life. We know he died on the cross for our sins. We know he rose from the dead. We know he ascended back to heaven. But we know that nothing like this physical rule has ever happened under the Messiah's leadership. And it sure does look like an expectation they had for the future that at least as of his first coming was not fulfilled. It's still out there to be fulfilled. All the way at the end of Revelation, we see as it moves toward the second coming of Jesus Christ and his thousand-year reign on earth from Israel that Revelation 19 and 20 talk about. It has several moments when it anticipates this physical reign of Jesus on earth. Uh, Revelation 11:15 says this, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So that's why back in Acts, if you look at it there in verse 6, it says, When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Now we're going to take a closer look at Jesus' answer in a moment. But what he does not say is what we might to expect to see there in this church age that we're in now where the gospel is extending to the ends of the earth. We might expect to Jesus to say, whoo, I'm glad you asked that question, students. It's a good thing that you did. Whoo, that would have been a whopper if we didn't cover this before I left. We might expect him to say, like some people teach today in many churches, that you got it all wrong, fellas. There's not going to be a physical rule later. There's not going to be a restoration to Israel later. You need to spiritualize all that language and make it about me ruling you spiritually only from now and forevermore. But Jesus doesn't do that at all. Do you see what he says there? It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He doesn't challenge them for wanting that to happen. It was the expectation then and still of many, many Jewish people and uh, Bible scholars that take the word plainly. He says, it's not for you to know chronos, chronological things. That's the word times. It's not for you to know kairos, those divine moments of things that are going to happen like the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's not for you to be obsessed with the timing of all those things, but it is going to happen, but that's not where I want you to concentrate during the next age that you're going to be in. So it's pretty compelling. Those who reject a physical future for Israel never have really known what to do with those verses there. Now, some of my fellow dispensationalists are so enamored by the verses of a physical kingdom, though, that they do something a little bit different. And they say, there is only a physical kingdom coming and it's improper to ever talk about Jesus being a king spiritually who's ruling now. And I think that is also uh, not allowed by careful consideration of the scriptures. And most uh, current scholars, you know, as they look at the word of God and they love it and they follow it, think that there's both a now Jesus ruling spiritually and a coming kingdom physically later on. So, there's clearly a now and not yet feature to the kingdom of God verses. 
So those 40 days, he taught them about the kingdom of God. Christ is already reigning spiritually in heaven on earth among those who follow him. One day in the future, he'll reign physically over the world from Israel. Churches today are like kingdom embassies in the world. For 40 days, he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Now, what I like about this is that uh, I run into two kinds of people that are both making a mistake. One is they dismiss anything to do with local churches now and they say we're all followers of Jesus King Jesus is our spiritual king and so it's not important to gather in a local church and make the most of a local church experience and that is wrong everything in the New Testament points toward the necessity of believers not only being connected to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith but being connected to his people through a local church involvement where we speak truth to one another and we do more together than we can do alone But there's also an abuse where some people make it so much about their local church that they don't see all the things that God's doing in the world as his kingdom is advancing spiritually. And so it's not that church is over kingdom or kingdoms over church. What it really is, they interlock as churches being embassies kind of representing the king of kings and what it would look like if King Jesus reigns throughout the earth. And so... Nobody wants to be so tunnel-visioned with their own local church that they don't see what God's doing and find ways both as a church family and beyond to support the work of God, particularly in those areas that he lays on your heart to be involved in. And so we want to see both advance at the same time. And isn't it interesting, commitment to Christ is not waning in the world. There's more Christians now than ever, 3,000 or so people being saved every hour around the world today still. Uh, a day of Pentecost every hour, which is really cool. Um, but churches themselves over 2,000 years have come and gone. They sometimes have a natural life cycle and are no more. And God raises up other churches that as part of the kingdom advance God's work on earth. And we are committed to all of that. You know, It's one of the reasons why I believe so much in church planning. Now, you know ever since I've been here, we talked about it last week, I've led you guys to have revival at the tabernacle now so we can be part of what God wants to do reaching people going forward here. But I also believe in church planning because so much of what God wants to do around the world as you make disciples, you put them together in church plants and it just unrolls from there and keeps on rolling and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. There's over a hundred references to the kingdom of God in the New Testament. Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven but it's very evident that it's interchangeable with kingdom of God. And so, let's look briefly at some characteristics of God's kingdom. First of all, the kingdom of God is all about God's presence. Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand because he had come to earth. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom's here. Why was the kingdom here? Because Jesus was here. What does it mean to get in on the kingdom? It means to get in on Jesus. In fact, in John 3, 3, we learn you must be born again to experience the kingdom of God. It's not just enough to be physically born. You're born into a state, but you're not born into a church. You're born again into the kingdom of God. And Jesus becomes your king, and you find a local church to become a member of and part of. And when a person gets baptized, they're saying, yes, I'm in on this covenant of you believers and all that Jesus wants to do in and through this place, but also that he wants to do on earth. Jesus said, you must be born again, born not just physically, but born spiritually, not just born once, but born twice. And we know that if you're born twice, you're only going to die once. But if you're only born once, you're going to die twice. That's why Revelation calls 
going to hell, the second death, a spiritual death, but a living experience of hell forever and ever. You must repent to experience the kingdom of God. John the Baptist said it, repent for the kingdom of God is hand. And then Jesus said the same thing when he started talking. Then he sent his disciples out calling people to repent for the kingdom is at hand. And Paul mentioned that was his message as well. You must turn away from self and self-interest and uh, not expecting God to uh, be the Lord of your life and instead follow him in all things. You must humble yourself before God like a little child and childlike trust to be converted and experience the kingdom of God. There's no room for pride here. You have to humble yourself. God, I need you. God, I want you. God, I will follow you. Jesus said experiencing the kingdom is worth giving up everything you possess for what you gain in him. You can't earn your salvation, but salvation requires everything you got. You give all of yourself to, you understand all of Jesus, you understand and follow him. And he told more than one parable and story about the necessity of being all in for him who is all in for you. Doing and teaching God's commands is what's going to make you great in the kingdom. Not doing God's will may mean your faith is fraudulent. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord. But they're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Only the ones who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Obedience is not optional for believers. Doing his will is not optional. There will be great reward for loyal subjects of King Jesus. We are to put... His kingdom interest in doing right things ahead of our own interests and needs. That's what it means to do righteous things, to do right things, the things he calls for in his word. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. Prioritize your faith. We're told we are the salt and light of the world. We are supposed to grow together in Christ in our churches, but he didn't say you're the salt and light of the church. We're not to have big piles of salt in all kinds of places. We're to take what God's doing here in kingdom embassies and sprinkle the faith out and shake it out with salt and light all throughout the week. We're to pray for Christ's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. He taught us that in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when God sends you into a place, into school, into a business, into the community, he's saying you get to change things there. In fact, the next thing we say is that he gave his believing subjects the keys of the kingdom to bind and loose things in his name. When Peter gave the glad confession, he says, you're right, Peter, and on this rock, rock for Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to overcome it. And here we are living a selfish, self-interested faith, only thinking about ourselves and not messing up too bad before we die. And we misinterpret those scriptures. He, he said the gates of hell won't be able to overcome it. What we think is, if I have faith in Jesus, I have gates around me and Satan can't come in and get me too much. But Jesus said it's the gates of hell that won't be able to overcome the church advancing for King Jesus here on earth with the keys of the kingdom, binding in his name, loosing in his name, sharing the gospel that can see lives transformed and changed. We all get to get on that. Can somebody say Amen. King Jesus is all. Jesus guaranteed this kingdom would expand throughout the earth. He said the good news of this kingdom will be preached throughout the world before the end. And I assume that meant the end of this coming, this present age. It lines right up with his great commission in Revelation 5 and 7. Jesus said his kingdom will involve many from east and west that the Jewish folks didn't anticipate being his, but they get in on this faith along with Jewish believers, including those who had been tax collectors and prostitutes. 
because of verses like that, we don't give up on anybody. We love them, we pray for them. We're willing to forgive. We're willing to remember that we're just sinners saved by grace and we just keep going forward in faith. The last verse in Acts, the very end of the book of Acts, shows that the kingdom of God was also Paul's theme. It says right there at the end, he for two years taught them, those that would listen about the kingdom of God, God working in their life as their king, God, the, the kingdom advancing all throughout them. Paul taught the kingdom was particularly characterized by righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Paul made clear the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He talks about specific sins and he says, such were some of you. You were caught up in sexual sin. You were addicts to this. You were doing that. You couldn't tell the truth. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were redeemed by Christ. And the church is made up of those who have come out of such stories. God has brought them out. Paul made clear that at the moment of salvation believers are transferred from Satan's domain to the king's dominion to the king's dominion Paul and John both spoke of being fellow workers for this kingdom and together we are here today as fellow workers for his kingdom so the Bible goes back and forth between the now and the not yet he's already your king through faith in him one day he's going to rule physically on this earth and that's the next verses there uh, we, 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 can't, we can't just have that commissioning of ourselves we need power to do it or else it could all go desperately wrong so Jesus's promise of the Holy Spirit power to his disciples is seen in verses 4 through 8 I wouldn't be surprised after Jesus talking about the kingdom like he had in so many ways leading up to his death and resurrection I wouldn't be surprised if during those 40 days their heads were swimming when he would talk to them about these things for them to be able to do what they needed to be able to do they needed divine enabling and we still do today don't we Look at verses 4 and 5 again. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was them, and there were 10 days between his ascension and his resurrection... And he had said, wait in Jerusalem. These were Galileans, and many of them were Galilean fishermen. What would you have been tempted to do if it was you? Ten days of waiting. I'd have been tempted to go back to Galilee and pick up my fishing rod and my, fish up my fishing nets and fish with my brothers some more. That's what they knew. And for many of us, waiting is the hardest part. You know God's got something for you. You know God has a plan for you, but waiting can be the very hardest part. Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem. As a Christian, I have found waiting on God's timing very hard. Maybe that's where you're at right now. You know God's got a purpose and a plan, but you just want to keep on. You want to go ahead of God. You want to go ahead and get there rather than get, maybe it's the training you need. Maybe it's a little bit more time in prayer. Maybe it's having his peace about something. Maybe it is another few conversations you need to have before you proceed with something. But I've also found acting the flesh before God okays acting has cost me dearly. A couple weeks ago, I gave you a quote, and it seemed to really resonate with you. It may have been from Abraham Lincoln. It may not have been. That's the one where it's attributed to him that he said, my greatest challenge every day is choosing what I want most over what I want now. What you want most is to be that husband that you're wife can look up to, the, your children can look up to as a father. 
You want that most, but what you want now is that next time in the drugs or in the alcohol. What you want most is to make an influence for God the rest of your life. But what you want now is to party a little bit more. Even a great saint like St. Augustine said, God, make me holy, but not yet. He really did. There was a chunk of him that really wanted to be everything God wanted him to be. But there was a flesh fighting against that spirit in, within him to make decisions now that would sabotage God's purpose and plan for his life. Jesus said, you're not going to be able to do this without the power. So wait. Wait until it comes. And of course, he was talking about the day of Pentecost. Think about this. If those first disciples had tried to go back into Jerusalem and advance Christ's kingdom, their own strength, what would have happened? They would have failed miserably. They probably all would have been killed for the faith before the faith even got going, right? If they just tried it on their own, many of them might have buckled like Peter had done before he had that empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so we wait. And so we wait. I'm looking forward to a couple weeks from now talking about the day of Pentecost and when the Spirit came upon the believers there and they finally the church began. It went from 120 to 3,120. And from that time on, all believers have been, had the Holy Spirit inside. But one big issue needed to be clarified for them. There it is again in verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And it's obvious from what we've seen already that their expectation was not illegitimate or needed to be set aside. The physical kingdom would come one day. But Jesus said, that's for later. That's for later. What's now is this age of parentheses between my first and second coming, this church age, this age of grace, this age where you're going to take the gospel to all nations, starting with Jews and Gentiles. It's going to start there in Jerusalem and go all over the place. Do you get what Jesus is saying there? Disciples, you are to enthusiastically expect Christ to return and rule, but not become overly focused on the timing of the details. Now, you guys know I love to preach and teach on prophecy. I've got some clear views on that. I think they line up with a literal reading of the word, and I've shared those before, and I'll share them again. But what did Jesus tell those first disciples? This is where I want your focus to be, on reaching the nations for Christ, beginning with where you are. It's so easy to get sidetracked, isn't it? It's so easy not to wait on God's call on our lives. But God has a purpose and plan for each of us. And if the waiting for you involves getting training, Take the time to get the training. But don't lose the priorities. You know, church folk, it's so easy for us to get caught up in what really doesn't matter, both within the church and beyond. When Jesus keeps on bringing us back to his great commission to make disciples, to reproduce faithful and fruitful followers of Jesus Christ. And I sure hope that you get that message from the Lord and from me this morning. You see that when you add in verse 8, what did he say to them? He says, you'll receive power when the spirits come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where they were in all Judea. That was their country. Samaria were those that lived next door to them that were ethnically different from them some. And to all the ends of the earth, you're to reach all those people starting with where you are and going out from there. That power fell on the day of Pentecost, and we're going to talk about it in a couple of weeks. But since that day, everyone who believes in Jesus has the Holy Spirit baptize them and indwell them, and they become subjects of the king and of his kingdom. Turn over to John. We're in Acts. Turn to John chapter 7 briefly there. 
Jesus had said it was to his advantage that he goes away and that the spirit comes. We're actually living in the days of advantage over those first disciples. And some of that is because of what it means to have God the Holy Spirit inside of us and ministering from the inside out for us and through us the rest of our lives. John 7 Verse 37, it says, on the last day of the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture had said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. In the passage we're in today, Jesus was about to ascend to heaven. He said, wait, the power's going to come. And John 7 lets us know he was talking about God, the Holy Spirit, the great empower of believers for all that God's got. You know, in the Old Testament, they didn't have that empowering. The Spirit would come for a time, for a task, usually to a leader, sometimes to one writing a psalm, sometimes to one doing a building project like the tabernacle, sometimes for this and sometimes for that, a prophet as he would speak. But David, after he sinned, cried out, Oh God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. A true believer today can't lose the Holy Spirit. That was written before the time of the cross. John 7 lets us know there was a before and after. Now that Christ has risen and he's ascended to the Father, all who believe in him now have the Holy Spirit take up residence in their heart. So your sins are not only forgiven when you believe, but the God, the Holy Spirit, takes up residence inside, and for the rest of his life, he'll be impressing on you biblical truth to apply in your life in the moments that are stressful and hard during your life. When they had that empowering and they preached on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved and baptized that very day. And the gospel's been expanding ever since. And that brings us briefly here to the ascension to heaven in verses 9 through 11. Oh, it's so simple. He just says, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. Could you imagine it? Can you imagine Jesus just starting to rise right in front of them? Rising up and the clouds enveloping him? While they gazed into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. There's not a lot to interpret here. There's just a lot to marvel at, isn't there? To say amen about. With Jesus' return to heaven, the disciples were just about to see the next phase of earth history begin, what we call the church age. One day, they're going to look up, and that's now us. One day, look up and see Jesus physically in the sky at the rapture, and then later at his second coming, coming down. At the rapture, we go up. At the second coming, we come down. But for now, they were to stop looking up. The angels, the two men say to them, hey, don't look up. He's going to come back. But now look around. Look around at all the needs that God's calling you to meet, being the salt of the earth, the light of the world, all the difference that you can make from day to day. And I just want to ask you, is Jesus your king like that? Earlier I talked about absolute and constitutional monarchies, you know. And, and I think about how... Uh, Many people take a bill or what they want for their life. So that's what this represents, this blank page of paper. And then they go ahead and write their name on it and they fill it all in. All the plans that they have, the plans that they want the king to ceremonially bless for them. 
and, and, and then they give it to the king. They give it to King Jesus and said, Lord, this is my plan for my life, Lord. I think it's a pretty good one. This is what I plan to do and what I hope to do. And at the bottom, there's a place for your signature. And king, we sure hope you'll sign it, but you need to understand, king, this is a constitutional monarchy. And so Jesus, if you bless what I want to do, that'll make me real happy. But Jesus, if you don't sign the bottom, I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. And that's the posture so many of us have toward God. What God is looking for is somebody that'll present them a blank page like that and saying, Lord, I'm signing away permission for you to fill it in because I believe what you want for my life will be greater than anything I would make of it. And I think about some tremendous examples of that around this room, people that sacrificed. I think about Gary Reynolds, just a couple, three years away from a full retirement, couldn't get over God's call in his life to start a ministry now that would bless the world, and it has. You've seen up here Joe Fleming, a state trooper, had done much the same thing. He had his purpose and plan all the way laid out. And he saw that book Radical by David Platt that talked about, hey, be completely committed to Christ and watch him what he wants to do in and through your life. And he said, Danny, should I read this book? And I said, no, Joe, you shouldn't read that book. And he said, why shouldn't I read it, Danny? I said, because when you read that book, you'll retire early from your state trooper career and go be a missionary right now because I know that's what God's calling you to do. He had already told me he felt that call. He was going to wait. He had his plan. It was all out there. And it's okay if, that's, if God, God says to you, that's the plan for you to finish up and then do. And one of the great resources the church has now is people with our young retirees who get their full benefits and then go be missionaries and things. But for some of you, the call is right now. For some of you, it's waiting. For some, it's right now. And only God working through the Holy Spirit in your prayer life and through consultation with other believers can get you to know exactly what that looks like if he's talking to you about a change of something to something. Joe read that book. He retired early. And he's been a great missionary around the world ever since. Will you bow your heads? Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.